1995, the writer I most wanted to meet was Gore Vidal, and when he published his memoir, Palimpsest, I was naturally just dying to meet him and to talk to him about all the people he'd known and the dazzling cast of characters from his life. Gore was famously mistrustful of the British press, but he got on better with the broadcasters than with the print journalists. And so I was granted an audience in his hotel suite across the way from the American embassy, and here is part of that interview. One of the themes of the book is is lies and liars, and you present us with a gallery of, of, of world-class liars. Your, your mother, uh, Anais Nin, uh, Truman Capote, to name but three. The contingency of, uh, of memory is on your mind. When Jimmy Carter said to the American people, I will never lie to you, Senator Frank Church turned to me and said he would deny the very nature of politics. <laughs> <laughs> the pure indignation. I mean, that's what that game's about. I accept that as part of a game. The, the lies of the self-invented drive me crazy, and Capote was the most notorious. And Everybody knew he was lying about everything. I mean, he'd just invent stuff on the spot. You would you'd watch him. So watching the creative process of work was to watch that face start to twitch as he would invent something on the spot about somebody he'd probably never met or knew about. Uh, you say in the book that that was his true metier, that maybe he should have spent his time lying rather than writing... Well, books. or tried to put it into his fiction. <laughs> Instead, he put it into his non-fiction. <laughs> So he may really have created a new art form. <laughs> but uh, I quote Primo Levi, this marvelous thing that he has on lying, on how it becomes a total habit with people. Montaigne, of course, thought that it was the worst, most deservable of the stake of all the vices. If people constantly lie to you, uh, you have no idea where you are. You have no idea what, what the reality of anything is. Those of us who are quite interested in what is the reality of any situation, we don't like being lied to. Is this true? Is it not? My whole relationship with my mother. Imagine at my age writing about a mother, of all things. But a memoir forces you to, since mothers are important at the beginning of your life. Well, you've turned her into a character, almost. She's, she comes across almost as a comic character. She's wonderful, incredibly vivid. <laughs> but are, are we to believe that this is a, a rounded portrait of your mother? Well, I never said it was rounded. <laughs> I find it pretty comic, too. I mean, she had a very comical aspect to her. And, uh, she was the original flapper. And not for nothing was she an exact contemporary of Tallulah Bankhead. Each girl was brought up in Washington. One became, as you know, a notorious actress, first in England, and then the movies and so on. And Tallulah was the daughter of the Speaker of the House. And my mother was the daughter of President of the Senate pro tem. And the two girls thought they owned the world. They were the first two girls of that class who smoked cigarettes and drank martinis and went around with other people's husbands and generally and Tallulah went through an entire class, I believe, at Eton, <laughs> giving the lie to what Americans feel about Brits of that class. I have really four people that I keep an eye on through the book. Marlon Brando, Tennessee Williams, Kennedy, and myself, because we're all more or less contemporary. And each of us was setting world records. At one point, Marlon 
had uh, two full-time abortionists <laughs> on retainer. <laughs> Every actress in New York who got knocked up, and Marlon was very generous and said, even if he didn't know her, he said, oh, go ahead, go ahead, you know. <laughs> well, this is a world that in the age, age of AIDS, you can't conceive of the things that we did. There's, there's a political element, isn't there, uh, to, to um, your pronouncements about sex, because you've always been anxious to decategorize it. Totally. It, the, the government is interested in sex. Why is the government so interested in making um, certain kinds of sex good and other kinds bad? Control. Even more vivid than sex. I mean, if you prohibit certain kinds of sex, I mean, the state of Georgia, an act of sodomy, which can be oral or anal sex, between a man and a wife, you can, uh, one or the other can get 20 years in prison, and that was upheld by the Supreme Court about eight years ago. Hmm? How do they decide which one goes to jail? I would think, uh, well, they have a lot of little clauses in there about who is doing what to whom. I would assume both would be culpable if they were consensual. There is nothing our government will not interfere in, all in the interest of control of the citizens. Far more to the point is drugs. Forget sex. By prohibiting drugs, they have brought on a major crisis in the country, which ends up with about one-third of the black males between 14 and 30 in prison or on probation because they have nothing to do. They have nothing left in the inner cities but dealing drugs. This is a dream for a government that would be tyrannous like ours. They're already talking about taking the army bases and filling them up with uh, drug offenders. There's a kid in Michigan who was serving a life sentence for being caught three times with marijuana. I guess he tried to sell one cigarette to an undercover man. This is barbarous, this is tyrannous, and this is a government that will be overthrown. And I'm very happy to say that I have done my best to prepare the way. Literary reputation is also a, a, a minor theme of the book. When, when you first made it as a young man, you then went, didn't you, and, and met all the sort of great writers that you'd admired who were now um, sort of, well, your age now, and some of them are. My older, age now, yes. Um, because you wanted to meet them. Is it a surprise to you that you're now the writer then that perhaps the, the youngsters would come to? That you're the grand old man of literature in, in, uh, for America. I'm giving advice, you know, in the memoir, which is don't meet writers that you admire. It's just something, that. however, has, there's a dramatic change since I was 25 years old and eager to meet André Gide. And E.M. Forster is that literature was taken seriously. Nobody takes it seriously now. I don't think there's any writer on earth any young person would want to meet. Uh, unless there might be some extra reason that... Uh, he or she would be attracted. We had something called literature that we thought was all important. And there was a great line of succession from the Renaissance or wherever you want to start to the present day. And that all ended by, by 1960. I say somewhere, I think it's in screening history, to an interviewer, I said, you know, I used to be a famous novelist. She said, oh, well, you're still well-known and you're read. And I said, no, no, I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about the category. The adjective does not go with the noun. 
A famous novelist is like being a famous ceramicist. You can be a very good ceramicist, a rich one, a successful one, but there is no fame to it. Now it would be film directors, and as we know, they have succeeded to the painters when it comes to sheer incoherence about everything. We used to all roar with laughter when Leger or any of the great painters of that period would make pronouncements about their work. Even Picasso caused occasional ripple of laughter. I mean, they were so pretentious and so quite off the wall. <laughs> uh, one looked to writers for a view of the world, of the, of the prospect about us and before us. Well, we're out of it now, and uh, painters are of not great interest outside of the art galleries. Uh, it's film directors entirely have taken our place, and I say that without any this. He said, you see, now, if this were a print media, he turned white. You could hear the tension in his voice, the viciousness <laughs> with which he attacked his friends, real friends of his, who were like Altman. Thank heavens this is not print. You can see that I am not in the least exercised by the fact that uh, the public chooses to play other games. Literature has had its day. It will always go on in some form, but uh, it's now the film director's day. Do you count yourself a gossip? There's a lot of gossip in, in Palimpsest. Um, it, it's pretty elevated gossip. It's pretty high-octane gossip. But frankly, uh, a lot of what you uh, tell us about Jackie Kennedy, fascinating stuff, is gossip, isn't it? Yes, but I'm talking about, after all, what is a member of my family. And uh, that is very much part of my life. The only places where I go off the reservation are when I just find something unbearably funny, like the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. I mean, I can't think of them. Well, I, actually, I rather liked her, but he was of such an absurdity. I think you suggest that he was thick. I think I said he was thick, yes, as a board. But um, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with gossip, for heaven's sakes. What on earth are the narratives of lives anyway? What are they to be about? Grand Pensee, even Montaigne, goes in for a great deal of contemporary political gossip, which was dangerous for him. Say the wrong thing about Henri Catch, and, you know, he would be facing the axe. No, I think that you owe to anyone, if you're going to describe your life and times, you've got to give them a sense of what it was like. Um, let's talk about Jack Kennedy a bit, a bit for a moment. You, you want to gossip about Jack Kennedy? I want to gossip about Jack Kennedy. <laughs> I can oh, just tell gosh, you we're yes. coming overexcited over oh, there. Oh gosh, yes. I know I've gone all pink. Uh, you, you wrote... Where's Tom Dryberg would say, came all over queer, he would thunder. <laughs> <laughs> in, in, um, I think I'm quoting from a, a previous piece, but you once said that you, you liked Jack Kennedy as a, as a person very much, but that you disliked his presidency from day one when he invaded uh, Cuba. I think I'm quoting you pretty exactly there. Yeah. Exactly, um, yes. And, and, and that, that's the case, isn't it? But uh, uh, there's a point in the book where you say, you know, uh, you, you looked at Bobby and Jackie and you thought, uh, our, our lives are in Bobby these... Bobby and Jack. Uh, Bobby and Jack, excuse me. Our lives are in these callow hands. I was wondering, who, whose hands, who who's actually held the ball? Who, who would you both uh, <laughs> prefer? Surely not uh, you know, Reagan or Nixon or uh, Truman? Oh, callow is a, is a harsh word. They were, un they were untempered, untested, uh, 
Truman was in many ways more ignorant than they were, and certainly Reagan was out to lunch, but Reagan was never going to do anything. Jack wanted to win the Cold War, literally, and to win the Cold War meant it would have to go hot. And it would go hot, it would go atomic. And at the moment in which I am describing them, as I say this, I see them right in front of me. There's a lamp behind them. They're as far from me as uh, I am on this sofa. We will try and describe this for the radio listeners. And about 10 feet away, there's a desk with a lamp. And they were standing together with these furry heads close together with a message from, I think this one was from de Gaulle, about the Berlin Wall, which has just gone up, and Jack is already, we now know, making plans for a nuclear war. Well, I didn't know that then. I now know that because all the documents are coming to life, and that's, I have done a lot of research, contrary to just remembering everything. I did research that section. Because I have there some raw history. I mean, the actual conversations over a four-day period when I was up at Hyannisport and seeing the Kennedys every day and listening. Jackie, you were related to. We have um, the same stepfather, yes. You shared a, a slightly recondite uh, marital relationship, but... Well, it's uh, not all that recondite. It happens. And my half-brother and my half-sister are her stepbrother and her stepsister. We were brought up in the same house, indeed in the same room at different times. I moved out, she moved in. But we're part of a web of relations which uh, have altered my life and altered her life. She, she's more or less a, uh, an American saint. Are, are you happy then, uh, as in, in this family context, to knock over a, 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 an American saint? Oh, I couldn't care less. And also, I don't knock her over. I mean, I, I describe a real person the way she was, with pluses and minuses. Matter of fact, I think she comes over rather charmingly in my version, and certainly over the possibility of war. She was savage with the President of the United States and started haranguing him about all the children that would be killed. This is the Jackie nobody knows. This is not the queen of fashion. This is somebody who loathes politics, hates the American people, wishes, you know, she wouldn't have minded blowing up some of the constituents, but uh, she certainly didn't want any war. You made her a very tough cookie later on after Aristotle Anassis has died, and she's, she's compelling uh, Anassis' daughter to, to hand over a chunk of money, a tranche of money. Well, on the other hand, she was quite right. Uh, uh, Ari did everything to rook her, as we say in uh, America. <laughs> and uh, they had a prenuptial agreement of the size of the... Uh, Manhattan telephone book <laughs> and uh, he just canceled every article by the time he died because he went crazy he thought she had the evil eye and he came to hate her and when his son was killed he put it down to the fact that he had, he always called her the widow and I guess he knew that she would be his widow too and he loved this son and the son was killed in an airplane and he blamed her Malocchio, Malocchio, I'd say, and really stopped seeing her. But she did her job and was very helpful during his last days and so on. And then she finds that he's made this joke will. 
I think she, she, he left her the boat, but no money to keep it up. It was that kind of humor. <laughs> so she went straight to the heiress and said, you're going to pay off, or my brother-in-law, who will be the next president, Teddy Kennedy, this is pre-Chappaquiddick, will see to it that no Onassis ship could ever dock in the United States again. She got the money. You stop at the age of 39. Why? I was, I was terribly keen to start reading about you writing Myra Breckinridge, which is one of my favorite books, and I thought this was going to be a lot of fun. Very teased to learn that you got her voice from Anais Nin. Oh, I never knew that. Neither um, did I. Uh, do you really? <laughs> no, I figured it out. But sitting there reading this dreadful book, one of her early undoctored diaries, and this thundering voice of self-love, I mean, far beyond anything ever heard on earth before, uh, I realized was Myra. So I'd, in, I'd instinctively picked it up. I'm not about to get people to run out and buy Anis, however. She does not rise to the heights of Myra. She's not as funny as Myra. No. Well, inadvertently, yes, I must say. <laughs> My nerves are shattered, but I am indomitable. Or I am so brilliant that Henry Miller forgets to fuck me. <laughs> to imagine that the woman in me has been overthrown by the mind. I mean, come on, Myra, that's, that's Myra-esque. It is, so why didn't we go on? Why didn't we go beyond the age of 39 and, and through uh, some of well, the... Well, how long books? can the book be? I've already left out so much in this book. I suppose <laughs> it's, it's also the case that you're beginning, very sadly, to see the people who you grew up with and, and knew all those years die off quite a lot. I mean, one, another of the un, unwit or, or unwilling themes in the book is that you keep writing about somebody and hearing then that they've, they've died, which is... I mean, just, I think it was a week after I met John Osborne for the first time, whose memoirs I really liked, he was gone. I started to write about Ralph Ellison, remembering when we all lived on the Hudson. His obituary comes in. They come flying like bats through the window. So, in fact, I'm beginning to get superstitious as soon as I mention somebody, they die, which immediately makes me think, well, can we perhaps I should pick up my pen again. <laughs> well, on the other hand, there may not be anybody else left by the time I get... Do you ever worry about that? The, the, the people that were giants in your youth, people have completely forgotten about many times. There's, one, uh, there's a reference to uh, Santayana in, in, uh, in the book, and frankly, I have no idea who he is, which is shameful, but... Well, now you know about him, so isn't that worthwhile? Yeah. It's one, one, of, one of the greater minds of the late 19th, early 20th century. So I've brought him back to life for a bit. Uh, I think that's... It's, it's like literary criticism. The only purpose to writing a, a book review, something that will never be learned in these islands, is to draw people's attention to writers that they should read, that they might enjoy, that would be good for them. In every sense, not to denigrate, to keep people from reading when they don't want to read much of anything anyway. I mean, this seems to me to be suicidal. Do you remember a review you once wrote of a book called What Robert Moses Did to New York? Yes. Now, I've never read the book that that was a review of, but I've read the essay about ten times. Yes, there is a purpose, surely, to writing if, if something can, can uh, work. If, if a piece of writing can work in its own terms, even if... Uh, or to bring back uh, Dawn Powell, who was totally forgotten. Now I think every book of hers is, is in print, and she'd been out of print for 30 or 40 years. 
I took great pride in bringing Italo Calvino into the English language, where he was quite unknown. So what you do when you write a memoir, you try to bring alive people like Santiana, who after all was a major philosopher in his day. You see, we have too much information now and we have no knowledge. And information is now coming pulsing, pulsing, pulsing through television in which it's impossible to learn anything because everything is in bits and pieces. The brain can't connect them. That's the last use of literature. So that's why I continue to do it, even though I have a sense of shadows falling. Gough Vidal, thank you very much.